You heard the reading. How did this happen? David is the last person you would expect to have something like this occur to. We have seen up until this point that David has been a faithful follower. We spent months going over the life of David, seeing how God blessed David, seeing how God blessed his people, Israel. And yet here in chapter 11, we see a sharp turn. What we see is from 11 to chapter 20, God talking about the consequences when a believer in God turns away and goes his own path. We see the deep consequences that happen to the nation, Israel, because of David's choice. Some have wondered if Bathsheba was being immodest. I mean, they might ask, how is it that she's bathing out in public? The Nelson Study Bible, which was put together by men I know and appreciate their scholarship, says this. In ancient times, Israelite houses had enclosed courtyards. Bathsheba was actually in her own house. So she wasn't being immodest. She was in the courtyard. Perhaps bathing in a house would be difficult, no light, or, you know, you've got the dirt floors, whatever. She is in her courtyard with an enclosed wall around her. David's palace, my understanding is, was up on the hillside. They're on Mount Zion. Jerusalem is built on a small mountain. So he's up at the top where you would expect a king to live. Not only that, but he's on top of his house. And so he has a full view of all the homes below his. And so he looks and he sees Bathsheba. To my mind, she's not doing anything immodest. Though we can be shocked by such a story then or now, Scripture makes it plain and warns us about what can happen. James chapter 1, verse 15. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. David's temptation follows an age-old pattern. He saw, he desired, he took. He could not help but seeing But he could have stopped at that point. He could have stopped looking. He could have stopped at desiring. And he certainly should have stopped before pursuing it further. Well, the result of this, one result, is David's attempt to cover up sin. He's ashamed of this. He has broken one of the big ten. He's broken the Mosaic law, which was given to guide his whole nation given by God. 
and you're familiar with the Ten Commandments, he has violated the command, thou shalt not commit adultery. And so he's feeling shame, he's feeling embarrassment and even fear at the penalty, what this could mean for him, for his life. So he comes up with a, a pattern, a, a, an opportunity to solve his problem. Look at verse 6, and we're in 2 Samuel verse 11, or chapter 11, verse 6. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. Now we'll stop there for a moment. People look at that, oh, he's a Hittite. Oh, that's a foreign country. He must be a mercenary. Maybe he's not a believer in God, and people speculate on all sorts of things. I'm going to deal a little bit with history for a moment and then share my opinion about this guy. The Hittite areas to the north of Israel, including modern-day Turkey, it was a massive, powerful kingdom in its day. At first, people didn't believe the Bible account about the Hittites, but now they discovered so much of their artifacts and literature that the University of Chicago has its own library dedicated to Hittite literature. Very powerful. But a century before this, they had a great upheaval in the Hittite nation. So much so that there was a civil war and people left in droves. Some of them traveled down to Israel. It was a better situation. And I think a generation or two before Uriah arrived in Israel. And I think they became citizens of Israel. Why do I think that? Well, the name that they picked for their child, Uriah. You know what that name means? It means the Lord is light. Yahweh, Uriah, Yahweh is light. His parents were believers in the one true God of Israel. And though they were from the Hittite nation, they had adopted this God as their own. And so they named their son in a very noble way to honor God. And everything we know about him, which is somewhat limited, but everything that we know about him, this was a good man. I believe a believer in the one true God. We'll pick it back up. David sends word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Job sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, how the people were doing, and how the war was going. And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. Don't know what it was. Maybe food. Maybe he's 
thinking, hey, you know, I'll give you a gift. You can take it home to your wife and you guys can enjoy that. Verse 9. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. So apparently there were some servants' quarters there near the door and he stays there. Well, David instructed Uriah to go home, hoping he would have intercourse with his wife, Bathsheba. Then when the baby came, he would think it was his child and everything would be okay. But Uriah upset David's plan. Now verse 10. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David calls him in and says, Have you not come from a long journey, Uriah? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife as you live? And as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Basically, he's saying the nation is at war and my buddies are out in the field and they're roughing it. How could I enjoy all these pleasures? No, I won't. Man is driven by honor. Well, now we see David's second attempt. His second attempt to cover up his sins since the first one didn't work. David has this genius idea to cover up his sin, but Uriah spoiled it. But David is not giving up. Verse 12, Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next and David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. The attempt failed. Uriah was such a dedicated man that he wouldn't fail to do what he had committed to do. It's been said, Uriah was a better man drunk than David was sober. His character is evident. He fulfilled his commitments to his Lord, to his commander, to his buddies. Well, things go from bad to worse. Verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. 
David is desperate. Things are getting away from him. He can't control the situation. And isn't that what happens when we sin and we try to suppress it? So he uses the enemy troops to assassinate his own soldier. Kings are supposed to protect their people, right? And yet he's using his enemies in an effort to kill one of his best people. Desperate people do desperate things. Look at verse 16. As Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew the valiant men were. He knows that the enemies, these are the strongest soldiers, the bravest soldiers at this point. So he puts Uriah there. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Joab is a fierce soldier, but an immoral person. He doesn't seem to take any interest in protecting his own soldiers in this situation. Well, the news is sent. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger arises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? And then later he says, why did you go so near the wall? Then you will say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Here's the story of the message delivered, verse 22. So the messenger went and came and told David that all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field. But we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead. And your servant, Uriah the Hittite, is dead also. Joab anticipated that David would be angry at a defeat militarily. And Joab also understands that when casualties are involved, the king will be concerned. So in order to assuage his anger, he tells the messenger to say, Uriah is dead as well, thinking that that will take the king's mind off of this defeat. So this is what happened. Notice David's callous response. David sent uh, David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. And encourage Joab. The messenger had told David about the casualties. David, learning that his plan to kill Uriah has succeeded 
responds with kind of a whimsical response. Ah, death gets one person and then it gets another. Just kind of this capriciousness of death, the unpredictability of death. That's his response. David hypocritically tried to hide his deep guilt with this fatalistic comment about death. People who follow God often experience peaks and valleys. We've certainly seen over the last messages the peaks in David's life. He's been a great hero. He has championed God. He loves God. Even in the worst of situations, he pours his heart out to God. He wrote half of the Psalter. He wrote the Psalms. He is a good man at times, but here we see David at his worst. And I think there's a message in it for us. We might think, well, you know, that happened in the Old Testament times, but that that could never happen to us. We've got the Holy Spirit. Wait a minute. David had the Holy Spirit. We can all fall. And I think the message to us is that we be super vigilant, that we be careful, that we allow this to instruct us, to motivate us, to have our ears pricked with what could happen, even to this great hero of the faith. You know, people often find a little bit of sin tolerable. A Christian man shared with me that he is slow to call out others because of his occasional hypocrisy. I find his answer refreshing. It's honest. Shows self-understanding and humility. Two things that at this point in David's life, he lacks. David was fine shepherding sheep, his attention directed toward God. David was brave when facing down the Philistine champion because he saw his God as greater than the giant. David is skillful when leading his men against a larger, better equipped army. He trusts God and God rewards him. But David is weak in a moment in his life when he has too much time on his hands and he finds himself gazing at a beautiful woman. Some 25 years ago, I led a men's group. And as we got to know each other, we began to trust each other. And we began to share the difficulties that we experienced in life. And one of those was lust. People shared that, and we discovered it was a common problem. Men experienced that. Well, last week we saw that Satan is a lion, remember? 
prowling about looking for whom he can devour. Do you think that Satan and his minions, his angelic fallen angels who follow him, do you think Satan uses lust to attack people? If you know, if you've lived long, if you know the history of people, all too often. Would it surprise you to learn something I've read recently that fully a third of all the time spent on computers worldwide is dated, dedicated to pornography? A third. That sure surprised me. Well, what if men struggle this way? The fight is real. And the consequences are genuine, as we see. You can't be viewing porn and at the same time love the Lord. You can't be looking at porn and at the same time be having thoughts, positive thoughts about God. They're mutually exclusive. And once you stop looking, is, is that it? Well, doesn't that stay in the memory? Yeah, it's burned into the brain. And it can lead people to have further thoughts, further imaginations that take them farther away from the Lord. And the problem with that is that when you start departing from the Lord that way, you don't have the motivation to stop. And you don't have the power to stop. It becomes a downward spiral. Well, does that stop when we're saved? No. Jesus went to the cross for us. Praise God. He is our Savior. He died for us. He rose again. He lives for us. He makes intercession for us. He is great. Praise God for that. but we're all drawn by something. And it may be different from you than somebody else. It may be different for him or for her, but the danger is real and salvation does not put an end to that. When I went to seminary, I remember um, I worked at a grocery store and I would sometimes go to the 7-Eleven just around the corner, you know, pick up a Coke or whatever. And I struck up a conversation with the guy at the counter. And um, he was not a young guy, not a college-age guy, but I found out he was attending Dallas Bible College. And so we, uh, we became friends. And uh, in the conversations that followed, he shared with me about a, a guy he had encountered when, just like I had, the other guy had come in, a young man. And the young man came in, and my friend started witnessing to him and won him to Christ. And then began discipling him. And this went on for some time, but finally this young man came in, hey, when I trusted Christ, I thought everything would get good. My problems have gotten worse. Does becoming a Christian put an end to your problems? <laughs> Hasn't been my experience. 
And he explained to this young man that God can help you prevent some problems, but problems are a fact of life. I, I like the way that Ecclesiastes puts it. Um, man is born for adversity as surely as sparks fly upward. Ever been to a campfire and you stoke the fire and what happens to all those embers? They just kind of fly up. That's, that's just life. Man, they just, all those problems in life, you know, they, they come up. You have problems, everybody does. And becoming a Christian doesn't put an end to that. It just gives you the power to be able to deal with that, which is a good thing. So we need to see this, this problem. It's not a little something we can justify. It's an enemy who will do us in. Consider David. David was God's pick. He had God's anointing. David had the Holy Spirit. But David allowed a little naughty sin, a look, a stare, an imagination, initiation, a touch, finally, adultery. The problem with getting out of fellowship with God is we don't have the motivation or the power. And David consummated a wrong relationship. But was that all? Sin consummated needs sin cover-up. you got to hide the sin. you got to keep the secret. And my favorite comparison for trying to do that is, you know, you go to a swimming pool and you got a beach ball and you blow up the beach ball, right? Get this big, nice beach ball, real pretty. Well, you try to press it down under the water. As long as you work really hard, you can keep it down there, right? But as soon as you let it go, what happens? Pops up for everybody to see. And that's the way that sin is. Be sure our sin will find us out. We need to be careful not to go there. And David, he didn't come clean. He, he sent for Uriah. He pretended to be his buddy though he cheated with his wife. And Uriah showed loyalty to his friends in the army, the army that defended David. Ultimately, sin squeezed David so hard, put him in such a tight place, he had to resort to murder. Let's go back to the story. We're almost done with the story. Let's look at Bathsheba's response. Verse 26. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. We know that David sinned. We all agree on that. But what is debated is, what about Bathsheba? Was she a willing participant in this? And if so, to what degree? I think this verse 
may have the answer. She was not a willing participant or knowledgeable about what happened to her husband until the news came to her. And she lamented for her husband. She grieved for the death of her husband. She was devoted to her husband. The text never says she desired David. She did not do the initiating. In that culture, women did not have power. They basically were expected to do what they were told. The way I understand it, a man could tell her to do whatever, but what if the man is the king? What recourse did she have? None. From all I can tell, Bathsheba is a virtuous woman. When I look at the very end of David's life, he's dying. Bathsheba is brought into her husband, who David becomes her husband later. And she demonstrates wisdom and humility to the last. I believe she's a good woman. And Scripture never places the responsibility on her. Scripture clearly holds David accountable. So here's how the story played out. Verse 27. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. How does that strike you? It strikes me as being understated. I think a lot of times the Word of God just tells the truth. Doesn't moralize. You know, some people will always moralize and you kind of get this way. A lot of times scripture just tells the truth so that the believer in God can can see that and go, whoa, wow. There are serious consequences here. This speaks to me. I better heed the word of God. It doesn't need to moralize. The believer in God, the person who has a heart for God, will take it to heart. So here's the application for us today. It's a word about temptation. What powerful lessons can we learn from this experience so far? Anyone can fall in the area of sexual sin. The committed Christian can, and the casual Christian can. I might ask this question. Does a person become immune with age? No. Thank you for your honesty, brother. (laughs) I remember in seminary hearing about a pastor. And this guy had had a successful ministry. He and his wife were called to a church. and, And they ministered there until it was time to retire. So they retire. They step away from ministry. Well, sometime later, 
They're called back. Only this time, he's not faithful. He commits adultery. He leaves his ministry. Kind of wipes away all the good that he did, doesn't it? The last he was seen in that town was driving down Main Street in a convertible sports car with his fling sitting beside him. I heard another story about a pastor who was in his 80s. And they asked him when he stopped being tempted. And he said, well, to be honest, hasn't happened yet. Women, too, can be tempted. Some can be tempted viewing pornography. Others have different problems. Years ago, a man shared with me, a man I have a connection with through ministry, shared with me that his wife was having a very inappropriate relationship with a man that she met through a chat site. Though she's married, she just couldn't resist the temptation to have this ongoing relationship with a man who was not her husband. Different type of temptation, but a temptation nonetheless. And what I want us to do is not be quick to judge others. People fall, people need to be loved, they need to be restored. What we need to do is recognize any of us can fall one way or another. And let's be careful. So, with that in mind, here are five ways on how to avoid sin, especially sexual sin, written by Tom Constable. He says, here's some suggestions for guarding oneself against similar sexual sin. First, realize that there is nothing that will guarantee you immunity from sinning in this way. You may go on for a long time. You may have had opportunities and you said, no, you resisted it. Great. Does that mean you will always do the same? No. You can never be sure that you can't fail. Second, cultivate your daily commitment to the Lord. We cannot afford to live one day without that vital connection, especially through prayer. And he suggests you start the day with prayer. Always start the day with prayer. That way, when you get into a situation and you might be tempted to do something wrong, doesn't even have to be this, anything, because you've established the connection for that day, it helps you to stay connected when you need God's power. Third, cultivate intimacy with your spouse. If you're married, cultivate intimacy. Covetousness is less of a problem if you are content with your spouse. And it's important to know that contentment can be learned. Think about Philippians 4.11. Paul said he learned to be content. Fourth, cultivate accountability with your mate if you're married. Voluntarily tell your spouse where you've been, what you've been doing, and who you've been with. Don't wait for your spouse to ask you 
you volunteer, you get in the habit of doing that. So you know you even will expect yourself to be accountable. And fifth, anticipate temptation and avoid it. If you know a particular individual attracts you strongly, do not spend too much time with him or her. Furthermore, refrain from saying anything to such a person that you would not say if your spouse were present or if their spouse were present. Final thought comes from the text that's up there. Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11. I wonder if anybody can remember what is in that passage. It's Jesus. It's Jesus facing temptation. You remember that the Holy Spirit initiated this. The Holy Spirit called Jesus out into the wilderness, and he fasts 40 days. And then when he is at his absolute weakest, Satan comes to him and repeatedly tempts him. Remember that? Satan says, hey, Jesus, if you're the son of God, do a miracle. Make these stones here become bread. Satisfy your hunger right now. Could Jesus have done that? Yeah, I believe he could. But it wasn't his father's time. His father initiated this, and it wasn't done yet. And so how did, and this is the key, friends, how did Jesus respond? With Scripture, yeah. He knew the Word of God, and he said, no. Because it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Our Savior succeeded. He succeeded at his weakest point. And he becomes the model for us. Friends, may we see Jesus as he succeeded. And may we choose to follow his pattern. May we always be found faithful. Father God, temptation is real. I've seen too many people succumb to it. And it's devastating. Father, I pray that you would help us all to draw close to you. And when temptation knocks, whatever form it may take, we would draw strength from you and you would motivate us to live an appropriate and holy life. And we pray in our Savior's name. Amen.